0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Egypt is often the focus of religious and political histories of early 20th century. The striking hardening of nationalist and Islamic movements within Arab societies during this period is frequently described through the growth of Muslim Brotherhood or specific pan-Arab ideals. However, the religious and political spheres intersected with the new forms of Egyptian cultural production. In Islam and the Culture of Modern Egypt, From the Monarchy to the Republic, published with Cambridge University Press, Mohamed Salama explores how Egyptian authors and filmmakers articulate the role of religion and the nation in the lives of the modern subject. He provides a short genealogy of Arabic literature in the first half of the 20th century that addresses questions of nationalism, and Islamism, and demonstrates how authors oscillate between tradition and secular values in modern Egypt. In our conversation, we discuss the religious and political contexts of 20th century Egypt, British imperialism, the emergence of the novel in Egypt, well-known authors such as Taha Hussein, Naguib Mahfouz, and Yusuf Adris, the Muslim Brotherhood, short stories and theater, national identity, and the director, Yusuf Shaheen. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now my conversation with Muhammad Salama about Islam and the culture of modern Egypt, from the monarchy to the republic. Welcome, Muhammad. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I am good. Thank you very much. And I
1: really appreciate you inviting me to the the podcast, Christian.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk about your book, Islam and the Culture of Modern Egypt. Um, Before we get into the book, um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your background. Um, You know, what brought you to the study of Islam and Muslim societies? Uh, What brought you specifically to to Egypt, which uh, I'm sure will come out. But um, if there was... uh, you know, um, people that were influential or moments that were influential in shaping kind of the type of research you do, the type of questions you're interested in, uh, answering. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what made you the scholar you are today?
1: Oh, wow. Okay, yes, of course. I'm happy to do that. Um, well, what brought me to Egypt? Well, I was an act of fate. <laughs> <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was born, um, in Alexandria, uh, So, which is you know the the bride of the Mediterranean uh, Sea, as the Egyptians would call it, and um, I grew up um, in a in a working class family, uh, which I talk about a little bit in the uh, introduction to the to the book, Uh, and um, so basically most of my interest grew around learning about not just you know the egyptian past or the, the the pharaonic past which overwhelms the world when the word egypt is mentioned everybody wants to go all the way learn more about the you know the last 4000 years and which is also an amazing feat of of civilization in and of itself but just the immediate past that brought us here the, to to the moment where, where we are and just trying to understand how um you know how my life is shaped the way it is with the familiar background I have in relationship to my family, my country, uh, Egypt at that time. And um, interestingly, Alexandria, uh, you know, in the, in the 1970s, uh, still had some uh, outstanding foreign presence, mostly Greek, uh, Italians, and, 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 and so it was important for me to figure out how, how this sort of small city, compared to Cairo, was shaped and what are all these minorities are living in Egypt and in Alexandria and the Coptic minority that was actually not like almost next door came to be. So I was really passionate about learning this. So I studied in grammar schools, what they, what they call them grammar schools or public schools, um, thanks to Nasser's uh, making Egyptian, uh, education obligatory and also not obligatory, but definitely free for all Egyptians. And that was something uh, I cry away from the uh, the Farooq, uh you know, mon- monarchy where, where, where education was uh, private and you have to pay for it. And so I discovered a passion for languages, specifically English and, uh, and also Arabic. So I was really sort of almost trained to become a linguist In fact, I almost got a PhD in in comparative linguistics. Um, But then Arabic became not just the sum of its parts, it also became a history. Um, a history that is deeply associated to rhetoric, and and the Quran, which is the foundational work and book of, of of Muslim faith, and so the more I learn, the more I learn that I really need to learn more, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and that there is a lot of ignorance on my part learning about things. But um, after studying in Alexandria when I went to grammar schools, I i scored high in high school and, and i'm not sure if you're familiar with the egyptian system but um, when you score high that actually defines where you go so uh, which is very unfair because you could be a, a brilliant artist but you didn't you don't score score high enough to go to an art school and hmm. um, but luckily for me i did well i was a, a geek i believe and, and nerd. <laughs> so <clears throat> i studied i did very well so i I was, avail- I was able to join any university in Egypt I wanted at that time, and uh, to, to my family's, my mom's consternation, I chose Ain Shams University, Cairo, to study to continue studying English because at that time I really didn't speak much English, and I wanted to learn more about the English language. And I was so sort of starstruck with the Renaissance and English literature at that time. Um, so I traveled to Cairo. It was Cairo's culture shock for an Alexandrian, by the way. And it's easy to tell an Alexandrian in Cairo, <laughs> even though we all speak Arabic. <laughs> but there, there are some shades of pronunciation that, that will give you in. For instance, you know, like the word for Wednesday is uh, Alexanders will say, <coughs> pardon me, Arba, but you know, a Korean will say arba, 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 Sharbat, Sharbat. So there's a little things, and also the word for tomatoes. It's very different, like Alexanders will say tomatem, but Koreans will say Utah. So it was hard. It was it was crowded, it was noisy, it was mystic, it was mysterious, it was disorganized, <laughs> and it was full of life and sleepless and Cairo, so it was definitely a shock. But I studied in Ain Shams University and I joined Kuliatil Elson, which is the university or the college of tongues, literally, but but it means languages, and I Joined the English, uh, the English sort of major there. This is where I studied with some luminaries in the field, Ramses Awad, who is the brother, younger brother of Louis Awad, who taught me uh, about the English novel. And uh, I studied also with Mahasin El Helouhut, who was a professor of Shakespeare, um, and I learned how to write English essays. But I also studied French, and then of course I studied Arabic. And I studied with Salah Fadl's wife, Dr. Qadriya Zaki, or Adriya Zaki, and Dr. Salwa Bahgat. Um, I studied also with um, Abdul Rahman, Shoaib, and Dr. Muhammad Hassan Abdullah. The really great people who opened my eyes up to the tradition of Arabic at that time and Islam. And... Um, after I finished college, I scored high again, and they wanted to hire me in, in, in Egypt, to, to in the in, in, in university to become, the word is mu'id so it's almost like a reader, it's the English system in which you want to continue and become a professor of English. But I did really develop a passion for comparative literature at that time. And with mastering Arabic and learning English and French, I thought I had some sort of a, a good sort of background to help me latch into any program of comparative literature, but it wasn't offered in Egypt. And so that was a decision to leave uh, and join a, um, a department of comparative literature whether in, in England or in the United States. And even though I got admitted into the two places, I chose the United States and uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I did my um, my graduate studies. And there, I. You know, i I studied with uh, I studied Arabic again, um, and I also taught Arabic because it was it was um, they were teaching elementary Arabic. Uh, Dustin Cowell was in charge. Dustin Cowell is a is a, is a first student of James Monroe, and uh, he came from uh, from San Diego, and and he really had this beautiful ethos of learning about Arabic with a huge passion, especially in Andalusian poetry. <laughs> so I really did have a fantastic time in my grad program uh, in Madison. I worked with Jack Lesra, Luis Madureira, um, uh, Gerhard Rector, who is now a Brown, and most of them were really theory heavy. and uh, And so it was, good to learn all, all these critical tools and ways to approach the text and read the visual and read the textual and be able to make connections between the two. And so that was really the, you know, the retooling of, uh, of, my, of my academic career. And, and I finished and then I got, uh, I got my PhD. But I did study cinema as well. And that was something I really liked. And it was, so, it, was, it was a minor that I really enjoyed the most. And it was the guilty pleasure of my, of my graduate school years. I studied with Kelly Conway uh, and I studied with um, uh, David Bordwell. I'm trying to remember the names. <laughs> it's been a while ago. But it, they really left a very deep sort of critical impact on understanding film art and understanding how cinema works and the difference between film uh, and literature, and the and also the connections between between both of them, as you will see reflected in my book, uh, especially in the chapter on Yusuf Shaheen and the Egyptian and Egyptian cinema in general. Hmm. So these are the formative um, uh, people uh, and, and steps that I have taken. But there are influential authors as well. Um, like the work of Raymond Williams has really deeply informed my work, my understanding of, uh, of, of the relations, especially the, the, the Marxian interpretation of literature. So is the work of, uh, Frederick Jameson, especially the political unconscious where, where, where art is always seen as socially symbolic and not that you want to restore art to history but there is more to a work of art than the the mere textual affinities that exist just in the text itself there is always an out text but it's it's your job to try to find it without without making it too heavy you know without without making extrapolations that are completely meaningless uh, at a certain point so this uh, has been very useful for me. Of course, Michel Foucault has periodizations and, and, the, and, the, and the question that there's always a, a, an epistemology and, 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 a, and, and, and an enoncé at work that sort of drives the the intellectual thinking of, of all of us without even feeling it. And so uh, The Discipline i Punish was a very useful book uh, to read and also was an eye-opener for me living in a society that is a society of the similar Punish, but also society of power and control over the masses. Um but when it came to the composition of the book, I wanted to write something different from the regular um the regular sort of trajectories that deal with Islam in Egypt, where you see just some prominent movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and and others and and the radicalizations, or the the dropping of the you know, the of the Khilafa in nineteen twenty four and speaking about Hassan al banna I just wanted something different that sees Islam on the street or in a living uh, you know, composition of the quotidian of Egyptians. And I thought that literature does help us give us, you know, see this, this history, sees Islam as seamless. And I mentioned this, you know, as practice in the everydayness, not necessarily as this sort of hegemonized, essentialized object that we need to, uh, to tackle from above. It was Islam from below. And the influential authors that helped me sort of come to terms with this study were Arnold Hauser, the, the Social History of Art, which is a beautiful book, by the way, Christian, and, and I, you, may, you may already be familiar with it, especially the uh, volume four, Film Age, <laughs> uh, which is it it does speak about not film as itself, but also film as a as a social history, especially when it speaks about the emergence of cinema in France. Another book was uh, Roger Shattuck's The Banquet Years which speaks about the origins of the avant-garde in France. All these are social histories of art. And uh, one that to my liking, and especially because I I got a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is George Moss's The Culture of Western Europe. Which appeared, which I think was published by Routledge in 1961, which also does give a, 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 a social history of, of of racism, of course fascism, and and the interesting history that created the the escape of the intelligentsia in, in, the, in the aftermath of World War II, or even during World War II, from 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 Germany to to, to North America. A great, great, great books, and I thought perhaps. I could present something like this to, uh, to to those who are interested in learning more about uh, the connections between the secular and the secret in the first 50 years of of 20th century Egypt.
0: Hmm. Now, um, you've, you've written um, kind of around similar subjects in, in other work, um, a lot of it dealing with uh, literature, of course, uh, a lot of it dealing with a kind of um, European uh, colonial imperial connections with uh, Egypt um, and ideas of modernity. Um, so, uh, people that might be familiar with your other uh, scholarship will kind of see per- perhaps um, some some through lines, um, but. Uh, <clears throat> This book. Uh, can, can you talk about the kind of uh, the, the the narrative of where it came from? Um, what what kind of gave you the idea to kind of construct the book in this way? Uh, to focus on um, uh, this this kind of social history in a way, looking through cultural products. Um, where where did the book come from f- f- for you?
1: Well, thank you. This is this is an excellent question. Um, Honestly, I wanted this book to be read, uh, by, by many of my Egyptian friends, my, my, my children, uh, I wanted to introduce something, uh, that sort of connects the, the loose dots, so to speak between, between Islam, between literature and culture of, of Egypt. I was hoping to, uh, let people see where we came from and where we are right now, but also uh, sort of uh, i mentioned the word memory in my book a lot and memory for me is not just of the past and i try to distinguish of course between memory and history because there's always a sense of identity when you are remembering things even though you are remembering things vicariously like for instance like i i, I was not born during the you know the high tide of egyptian nationalism and you know and the and Nasserism in 1954, and, and on 1952, and all these great times where my parents witnessed, uh, I just wanted to find a thread that questions the, the 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 obvious or questions what that what is taken for granted. Words like nationalism, words like modernity, w- words like uh, democracy, which um, I grew up, thinking that my country was democratic and so and so in a way it, 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 a sort of not just a disillusionment but the memory is also of the future of what is yet to come a memory of our hopes of of an Egyptian society that is democratic in the full sense of the word and how we got there how we moved from a, a monarchy that was under British rule to a uh, To a republic that is military and under under, you know, an oligarchy basically and how we allowed this oligarch to continue without questioning it except rarely as we did in 2011 with the with the revolution But then it died down and what is to come after this? And so I think it's really a book that asks questions it does provide some answers or at least a narrative but definitely leaves you with some questions of what is yet to come uh, for for a future in egypt that is uh, that is more democratic um there are some interesting entities in the book like the many have written about egypt um and many have written great works about egypt <laughs> so so it is it's, it's a very attractive history and so to add to this is also something i had to approach with with caution and and a lot of reverence and respect to to colleagues in the field who have contributed uh, intellectually uh to, to you know not just to the formation to but to an understanding, a better understanding of these dynamics uh in, in Egypt. Um and so 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 also the word culture um uh, you know in modern Egypt. I, I think that a lot of us like to to periodize very short uh eras but I see them also as a as a continuity. I see that not necessarily a continuity of rule, but a continuity of the system itself. Uh, like the British left Egypt, but then Egypt almost became colonized by its own people or by its own military uh, oligarch. And, and so that for me is a continuity, even though I do speak about this. I speak about the, the Donchway affair that happened in 1906. Um, um and, and what this, what it did to, to sort of sparking the Egyptian the, a very early sort of physical Egyptian revolt against the British, which sort of culminated in 1919. But I also compare this sort of revolution to to 2011 with the killing of, of Egyptian protest protesters and putting them in jail you can see the dissimilarities, but you can also see the continuity uh, of, of the injustices against Egyptians, or the, the people on the street, or the Egyptian masses in the public. And so, um, basically, um, Egypt, you know, or the incipient Egyptianism, I, I should say, which is different from Arabism, which comes during Nazareth's time, uh, this was born out of the colonial experience. And there was a desire to find uh, national identity, to belong to something, and to also carve a, a future for the culture of Egypt. And that's why Tahseen is very important for this study, even though I, you know, I don't really study the work that he does in nineteen thirty-eight. Uh, his book "Mustaqbal al-Thaqafa" famous, which, by the way. Is one of the best books ever written about Egypt in the last 100 years. Uh, but his his novel, Al-Ayyam, The Days, also carries the, the message for those who can see it. And so um, who, who is to say, of course, you know, like, what what of when any of these components, you know, the British, the monarchy, and um, and the Egyptian army and also the Muslim Brotherhood who played sort of underground role all the time. They were always there, visible but invisible, how these companions, you know, was or these components were sort of influential, <clears throat> pardon me, in sort of creating this Takafah or Hadara of modern Egypt. And so not trying to attempt to argue for dominant cultural ideology, but just to examine this sorts of ontologically diverging yet mutually informing uh, con- you know, currents that represent and also present themselves in, uh, in less commonly studied areas in the, in the novels and in cinema so that we can get a, a better idea of the cultural thought, uh, the, the diversity of cultural thought in modern Egypt.
0: Now, you, you go through uh, a number of uh, kind of luminaries in a way um, in Egyptian um, literature, um, some of them not as well known, perhaps, uh, to listeners, um, but um, in many of them, there's, there's often this tension between ideas about modernity, which you kind of lay out in the book, um, and then issues of, of kind of a traditional religious culture, perhaps. Um, and how these uh, these kind of intersections are are worked out through through narrative, uh, through characters. Um, it's really it's really great, and it's uh, I mean I love I love this type of analysis. Um, could could you talk a little bit about um, kind of this uh, the, the social and philosophical effects of this encounter, um, and how it shapes. Uh, much of the literature, you know, you know pe- the authors you look at take, take sides, of course. Uh, but, but what would you say are kind of some of the, the through lines uh, across the various texts you, you look at?
1: Oh, of course. So um, it's, if you are working on Egypt and you probably would, would sort of identify with me on this, a Christian, it's hard to make choices. <laughs> there are <laughs> some really fascinating authors here that, you know, that you have to say, should I use Mahmoud Taimur or is, is it enough? Or what about Ali Abdelrazi who also wrote the book about the Khilafa or the Caliph or the form of the Caliph, which created sort of a huge... Outcry in Egypt, 1926. That was even before Ta-Hussein wrote uh, a pre-Islamic poetry to to sort of decry this historical uh, you know, identity, right, of Islam and its relationship to to its own history and the formation of its uh, pre-Islamic Arabic poetry. All these sort of big. Um, flashes that, you know, or fireworks that you see in the sky of the na- 1920s of Egypt. Um, so the, the interlinks between these authors is that I try to look for authors who not necessarily represent consciously or not the the, the decade in which they are in or the, the most important momentum and events they're in, but also the humanization uh Of you know that that is or or that that goes beyond this you know or is always at the bottom of this the Egyptian psyche itself Uh, Egypt went through different phases of of illiteracy right and I think one of the most really rarely studied aspect of Egyptian modernity is the fact that modernity itself. emerged differently in Egypt, and Egypt grappled with its own modernity. And I know that modernity is not a cup of tea that every nation has to drink. Or, you know, I think Frederick Jameson mentioned something like that. But I think it's important to speak about these sort of alternative modernities, how it came to be. The, the level of literacy in Egypt was very limited. In fact, I think it was 7%. And it's still really not high and, uh, to this moment. It, it sort of continued enough. So so to, to really create a, an intelligentsia of sort and to to, to create a, a society that is trying to understand itself, especially after the fall of the Khilafah in 1924, where to go has always been a question uh, for me. Uh, you will be surprised, but we, are, we all are, that despite the egyptian um or despite the british domination over egypt the fact that egypt rule was ruled over by england for almost 82 years um pardon me egyptians really never culturally were influenced by by england they were influenced mostly by france and you, we wonder why? Perhaps there was a sort of rejection already of, of of the of the British sentiments. You know, British occupation is very strategic and rigid, as opposed to British as to French occupation. Not that you know both occupations are ill and horrible and violent. You know, violations and usurpations of people's homes and the resources. But, but the idea that the system was different. France wanted to expand. France was more expansionist, and I think there was something about the, you know, the the intellectual occupation, so to speak, of the French over the Egyptians, where many Egyptians were influenced by by the French. Uh, Hussein, uh, who is who sort of. Uh, in my chapter two who in, in Masr, who, who wrote Zainab was deeply influenced by uh, you know this cultural renaissance of modern egypt as i as i call the chapter he was deeply influenced by french authors and french writers in the spirit of liberty but also equality right and so, so there was this sort of the lake that you can see really easily in Zainab but Zainab is an egyptian falaha she's a peasant woman and how do you create all these differences and how do you make you know a woman, sort of, a, a sort of a victim of a nation that needs to really liberate itself. The, the question is not about Zainab; it's about Hamid, who is the, you know, the, the 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 antagonist who is trying to move away from arranged marriages and the questions of hijab, and just to liberate the Egyptian psyche from its sort of blind following of tradition. And so, in a way, I was able to find links in the questions of the peasant, not because. I mean, there is a peasant in every Egyptian story, and I don't take credit for this, as I mentioned. But also, I come from a family of peasants. So that's, that's why I sort of begin this with a with a biography of my own family who moved out from the south of Egypt, and this dream of the peasant. The dream of the peasant to not only to belong honorably to a country that is no longer occupied, but a peasant who can live honorably and make a living and... Um, just have a happy life, you know, the Egyptian dream, so to speak, which is not a big dream, but it's a dream of having a family and, and making money and just making sure that you have food and, you know, and, and just money to pay the rent or to even own a house. And that was the dream of my father when he left the south of Egypt. And he was not one of the 7% of, of letterates at that time. He was one of the other 93% of the Egyptian literates. And how do you carve a way for yourself in a very rapidly transforming Egypt where education is becoming a, a must for people to gain jobs? And so these authors sort of bring this to the fore. So Haeckel uh, speaks about Zainab and speaks about the challenges of the, the questions between conservatism and, 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 and the secular. Uh, of course, Ta um, Zeyn, sort of really comes so close because of his also upper Egyptian background and because of the blindness you know, that has happened to him, you know, due to lack of medical neglect and, um, you know, but also due to certain traditions because his family believed both, I don't know if they believed in the power of medicine, so to speak, but Tahseen was would go to the barber in every village, the barber was a doctor the barber is the one who does the circumcision, the barber is the one who can heal your eyes, the barber just has a fantastic sort of concoction that does heal everything, and people, believe, people believed in this. And Tahsin lost his eyesight uh, young. And so there is this always this reminder of Tahsin's uh, journey, which became one of the most remarkable journeys of a human being to not only become the first Egyptian to receive a PhD, uh, uh, at the Sorbonne, but also to become the 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 of Arabic literature, uh, and to make it from you know from almost nothing, or perhaps even a strange future that was awaiting him, to come in and to write al ayam, and al ayam really, you don't even need to read anything about the history of Egypt. Just read al ayam. Al ayam could be enough <laughs> for anybody. Seriously, to to just give you a very deep. Truthful idea. Of course, it's a representation art is always a representation of reality and I'm not this is not lost to me But reading al am and see the grapplings of ta Hussain and also even seeing him when he gets married to a French woman and he gets the ridicule of Al-Azhar And they try to just really make his life miserable They make fun of him about his wife and how come you leave you marry a woman who is not Egyptian and where, where is she now? And why is she doing in France? and why are you not with your wife these are the Azharite cheikh you know sheikhs ridiculing ta who's way far advanced in everything you know uh, and but but he was also polite because he knew that uh, after writing 19 that 1927 fi al-jahili where this this revolution against him he also was a subject of ridicule that's why he wrote al-ayyam he wrote al-ayyam not as an apology To not to 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 uh, on pre-Islamic poetry, he wrote a lamp to explain the position of a of of an Egyptian or of an Egyptian blind man born in the south of Egypt, and how it all came to be for him, and how his life sort of through all these difficulties and challenges of Al Azhar that wanted to compart him into something. All he wanted is to make him a sheikh to read the Quran in, you know, to in, in recitations, in in funerals or other things. That's what the future of Tahsin was supposed to be and how he made that challenge and how he became who he is. But this question of the Egyptian peasant continues in, um, in not necessarily in Al-Hakim, the people of the cave, but you also see it in um, in Ali Ahmed Bakathir, The the Red Revolutionary, and The Dismantling of the Secular, where Islamism is writing back, trying to gain the Egyptian peasant into sort of the conformity of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? But then you see it also reflected in Yusuf Idris, who is an amazing author, who, by the way, is really in need of more writing. Uh, Naguib Mahfouz himself says that if, you know, if anybody deserved the Nobel Prize, it, it was... Uh, it was Yusuf Idris. Um, but 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 I chose Yusuf Idris, uh, Farahat's Republic in particular because of the word and the word farhat. and that's where irony becomes sort of, you know, that's where the disillusionment with the question of the Egyptian comes to fore to the Egyptian intelligentsia. And these are the 1950s where you really start to realize, wait a minute, are we really doing okay? Is this really right? Uh, is it okay to have an army ruling us? what is this army doing and how long are they going to be ruling us every hagoumat thawra or every revolutionary government was temporary it always starts as temporary as transitional but it never moves away from the transition and so and so that why that's why i found i found all these interlinks between uh between these novels that eventually ended up to become the choice uh for these areas
0: yeah it uh, it does connect well from chapter to chapter um which you've you've made my job easy because you've gone through many of them uh and kind of given us some of the key uh parts of them but i want to uh return you mentioned um talfiq al-hakim's the people of the cave briefly um this i I think is a really interesting uh, example that perhaps um, some listeners are not familiar with so can you tell us a little bit about this play Um, and how it was received by uh, Egyptian audiences, and then what what you think we can learn from it? Oh, absolutely.
1: Forgive me. So um, Al-Hakim is, okay, so he is a contemporary of Tahseen, right? And so they always really had had these connections together, they read each other's work and they commented on it secretly, but also together as well as friends or they maybe frenemies that, <laughs> if I could say that, because they also had this sort of interesting rivalry between them. And Al-Hakim, because of, he, Al-Hakim has a law degree, right? And he was, he was doing something like, I think he, he, he was a lawyer and he really tried to divorce himself from his literature. He did not want people to know uh, who he was like he did not really come to grapple with the fact that I could be Tofiel Hakim and I am the same Tofiel Hakim who writes, you know, about you know about al Kaf and about Tigmalian and about this. So he really tried to, to 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 sort of separate these two Hakims, but at the end, of course, it was found out. <laughs> so you can't you, you can't sort of hide your identity uh, forever. But Ahl al Kaf is, um, I think, perhaps a very uh, Egypt, a very early e- Egyptian confrontation, not confrontation, but coming to terms perhaps with the Egyptian Torah, with Arabic Muslim Torah, right? Al-Hakim has a very interesting way of, 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 of writing in general. And, I, and if you see it in Pygmalion, which I also wrote about a long time ago, much longer time ago, <laughs> uh, he likes to take something that's already there and change it completely. And, and give it different themes and, and make it. In fact, I think His Pygmalion is a really beautiful, beautiful play. But Ahl al Kaf is exactly right that, like, like that. It's, so if you are not familiar with uh, the, the Quran, uh, chapter 18 of the Quran is called Surat al Kaf, which is the chapter of the cave. And, uh, and that chapter of the cave basically narrates the story of uh, what is known in, 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 in biblical sources. Uh, and, and Christian tradition as the sleepers of the cave, and was, they're, they're, they're called seven sleepers. But uh, the Quran doesn't really know, or doesn't really not know, does not really say how many sleepers there were. But the point here is that those in 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 eschatology or in, in Islamic tradition, the idea of mentioning the the story of the seven sleepers is that these are. A, a group of people who were uh, persecuted by a, a, a heathen, uh, I think Docianos, I think uh, um, sort of ruler. We're talking about four or five here, or something like this, uh, maybe, who wanted to people people either to just disbelieve or just leave Christianity behind and just become. Faithful subjects, or just they will meet a horrible destiny, which could be in jail or persecution or even killing them. And so they ran away uh, from, from that horrible king and they didn't know where to go. Um, in the Quran version, they have a dog with them. And so they basically went to a cave and they started to spend the night there to sleep. And, but, but, and then they were asking God. Uh, took the care you know they did this you know something like god help us you know help us hide us we did this for your sake so there was kind of a prayer and then they fell asleep but they fell asleep for what is you know historically known or or at least assumed to be more than 300 years and so they wake up and from the sleep so so in a a way there is this miracle of or divine miracle of giving them life again after 300 years and and just kind of you can also see in this if you want to read deeper uh, into the history of egypt egypt getting a miracle of revival or resurrection after the british occupation (laughs) Uh, right but but i don't want to I don't want to make it too much uh, of, of of a heavy-loaded uh, metaphor, but it, but with Al-Hakim, everything everything is possible, right? Uh, so so anyway, in, in the Islamic and the Quran story, they wake up, uh, they realize uh, suddenly that they are not, that they did not really sleep for a day, or some as they thought that it was more than this. They go try to get some food, and they have these very old coins. They thought that they somebody found a treasure, so they, tried to, they hunt them down, and they find them. And then all of a sudden they become saints. And after that, they die. But people sort of created a shrine around them and just make this sort of a kind of a holy place to visit uh, and to marvel at the wonders of, you know, of, and the miracle of God and God's ability to, to resurrect the dead. That's the story. What Al-Hakim does with it is that he brings them to life and he gives them a dialogue and, he, and then they start questioning the meaning of life existence the love affairs because one of them was in love with, with a woman before he before he went into his deep long slumber and 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 then he wakes up and he, he thought it was her but it was her granddaughter uh, uh, he grand grand granddaughter <laughs> that looked exactly like like her and she also had the same features and the same name so there was a lot of confusion but what al Hakim wanted to do with this with this story is to basically um remind us that 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 there is that if there is a meaning in life where do we find it um if death is inevitable then what do we do with what we have right now and um and i and I think this is the shock of recognition that al Hakim tried to enlist or um in <clears throat> forgive me uh sorry just try him out <laughs> in um you know in egyptian psyche uh, but also the first time a, a story that is from the quran sort of developed into into art right and all these sort of sentiment that he learned about the meaning of life but also about about meaning in life so there is meaning of life and also meaning in life and how many of them chose to die but some chose to live but in the end they all tracked themselves back to the cave and somehow love survives and that's something that al-hakim Cares deeply about that how a sense of love should always be what we strive for. That without love we are nothing, basically. And this is why one of the lovers of uh, of one of the shepherds decided to go back into the cave uh, with him. And and so um, in a way, uh, you know, this Hakim was deeply influenced by Sartre, by the way. And Sartre's "In Logia" says something: "I am, I am, I exist. I think, therefore, I am." I am because I think. Why do I think? I don't want to think anymore. <laughs> I am because I think, and I don't want to be. I think that I, because. And then he collapses, a mental collapse of thought. And, and, so, and I think this is where Al-Hakim sort of carries the task uh, of the influence of Ahl al-Kahf, or the people of the cave, uh, the representation, of course. But Al-Hakim was very difficult. Theatrically, uh, he always liked to speak about the theater of loss right uh, and i think this is where where he uh, where he i think shines uh, and you know like remarkably as his own self and i i do mention i begin this with a judith butler remark that humans are always marked for life and that this marking becomes the condition by which life is risked by which the questions of whether one can move and with whom and in what way or these questions are all framed and incited by this sort of irreversibility of loss itself. How do we grapple with loss? You know, and, and so and I think and I think this is this is a very different move from a from a Quranic chapter that is trying to tell you that God exists and you should believe that you will be resurrected after you die to a very internal question of identity. Who am I? What I am doing on this world? Do I even have to believe or not? Some of these people in the cave did not end up uh, believing in God anymore. They were like, "Okay, this 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 whole thing is absurd," and I really mean it in the sense of the French sense, you know, like the was uh, Camus' La Chute. You know, if you think of the the fall. In, in in Albert Camus uh, where you know this laughing man, that uncontrollable laughter, I think this is the same idea, although I don't think uh, Hakim would have had success with, have, with having an antagonist just laughing uncontrollably <laughs> for the Egyptian sentiment. So I think he was very clever to use something so known, so familiar which Egyptians read every Friday and transform it into a piece of art to question the meaning of life and not to take things for granted, which I think, is a pregnant moment of modernity.
0: This um, uh, kind of pairs well with the, the following chapter, which you look at Naguib Mahfouz, um, who, who, of course, uh, is a very influential and important author, um, but you, you zoom in on um, one of his earlier short stories, uh, The Whisper of Madness, um, and it's, it's kind of related to this idea of loss in, in some ways. Um, I wonder if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about why uh, or what the is about and then why you, you chose it in this context <clears throat> of course so um,
1: well when you mention Mahfouz uh, Christian I I have to pause just because of the of the enormity of his contribution to, to, to Arabic literature and thought not just to Egyptian uh, Mahfouz has a gift in the in, in, um, a gift that not too many people receive. And I met him personally. I had the honor of seeing him. And it was a pure coincidence. And it was 1987. And there was one year shy of him receiving the Nobel Prize. And I was an avid reader of Mahfouz. In fact, the journey to our... Our relatives downtown in the south of Egypt. Uh, for me, taking the the twelve o'clock train Wabur Saat Nasha from Alexandria all the way to Aswan. Although my 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 family, uh, my grandfather, uh, and my aunts and my uncles lived in Qena, which is a little bit before Luxor. But it's we're talking about an overnight train uh, ride, right, right? I would always have a Mahfuz uh, book with me through the journey, so uh, through bidaya wa nihaya Allah, al you name it, and there's always <laughs> there's always a Mahfuz. And I started reading Mahfuz maybe when I was thirteen or so. Of course, I didn't understand everything at the time, but the the narrative, the narrative, uh, the the gripping narrative of Mahfuz was so attractive for me. And so when I met him. I was just you know starting I mean high like finished high school and starting new in Cairo and it was by Borg El Gezira where he used to live in El Haguza or the Aguza area in um, you know very close to the Tahrir Square area and uh, and he would he would take daily walks and I had no idea uh, I was ever have the chance of meeting this wonderful human being but then I remember meeting him and he asked me what I was doing and what I was studying and he was so kind so kind, like a father, as he always is in his narratives and his work. But then shaking his hand, like I almost wanted to hold on to his hand forever, forever because this hand wrote for 60 years. And 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 I, it was just a, a starstruck moment for me. Uh, and at that time, I was writing an essay in which I was comparing uh, the, the, the inverted uh, idea of evil. I think it was in the list of Al-Kilab, the Thief and the Dogs versus Bernard shows the devil's disciple were they all was always the uh, the hero you know the anti-hero, the hero who is misunderstood right the misunderstood hero who always bears the blames of everybody else and just dies with it right and, and so I, I asked him about the little kilab and about other work and at that time he kind of had a stop of writing I think uh, after after he wrote the day the leader was killed the al zaim I think in the, you know and so, in a way, he was just an amazing presence, and, and and for me to 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 always carry Mahfouz with me, it has always been a source of solace. If I wanted to feel Egypt, the pulse of Egypt, I just start reading Athelathia. You know, I read about Amina and Saddam Abdul Gawad, and this beautiful everything comes back to life. And Mahfouz also was the cinematic author par excellence. You can read him, and you can almost make a movie right away. Even if you're not a filmmaker, he will inspire you to make a filmmaker because he has these amazing cuts and editings, almost like he is making you, making it easy for you to, <laughs> to turn his work into cinema, into, into, into a different kind of art. And so uh, The Whisper of Madness was one of his like, beautiful first maiden short stories ever. And uh, and most of Naguib's four stories are not really um, are not really given enough attention, I should say. So you know, like the when when the when the committee gathered in 1988 to give him the Nobel Prize, they did not think of the Whisper of Madness, right? They thought of Aulat Haritna or Athulathia, right? They thought of big things or his Egyptian uh, history works, you know, like Echnaton or Al al-Haqiqah and Kifah Tiba and all these interesting works. But nobody would ever think of the whisper of madness, and as an as a reader of you know uh, reading Foucault's History of Madness, which is a whole different story about you know like I, was, you know ab- about how madness was also used in an excuse for political persecutions, right? Uh, and mental illness was never really appreciated or understood. You know, it was always thought of as a crime, and and for the first time, of course, the crime again is the crown, but then a crime in general, uh, but but but. The Whisper of Madness is a different narrative because Mahfouz tries to tell the story from the point of view of a madman. And I think how to make the text mad it has been always fascinating for me, how to represent madness. And so I thought maybe if we can delve deeper into this uh, novel, sort of novella that he wrote in the 1930s, which, by the way, I provide a translation of it in the appendix because I didn't see it in translation before, and it wasn't hard to translate. It was very short. But I just wanted to make, to make sure people can actually read it and, and just enjoy it as well as a work of art. Uh, and I think why I wrote about it is because th- there is this sort of richness in, in, in Mahfouz, right? And, and And you can really zoom in and find the DNA of Mahfouz's call for social justice, his uh, reference to inequality, uh, his his questioning of life and death, the human will, which is very important, the Nietzschean notion of the will to life and the will to power, is always there is this very small, short, sort of little revolutionary narrative about a madman who was confined to the asylum uh, and he was sitting by a cafe and he he just flipped uh in in a way that he started to think why life is what it is one of the moments of the revolution you you really don't think the madman is mad at all because the what what triggered his madness so to speak is that he is seeing a woman and a man eating a big chicken by themselves and there are lots of other kids on the other side who are hungry and poor and maybe orphan looking at them eating without them sharing some of the food with them and you know they're hungry the other thing is that there was this caravan of uh, i think a king's or princess caravan and you know in egypt in order to celebrate that they would pave the roads with sands and flowers all over and 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 mahfuz uh, you know not mahfuz of course the the protagonist is wondering about how much money and, and why would they do this? Why would they dirty the streets in order to celebrate this person instead of celebrating, you know, the country itself? So these moments of, uh, of frustration uh, created the madness uh, of of, Mahfouz, uh, of Mahfouz's character. And, and I think that this is why he was misunderstood because some people said, well, you know, I don't know what to make of this novel. It looks like he's just going through a phase. He has really bad ideas. Absolutely not. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about a question of, of morality, but also of identity. And what does it mean to be a, a poor Egyptian, deprived, uneducated, and deprived of the right, you know, to, to, to live in a, in a society that that helps you promote yourself and become meaningful or make your life more meaningful for you. And I think this is where the whisper of madness uh, comes uh, to, to the you know to the fore. Uh, I think it's a very deep critique uh, of the Egyptian life in the 30's um, and this and of course you see modern Cairo itself as a city of madness, which he speaks about again in another in another novel, um, Cairo Modern. Uh, but you can see that there is this sort of remarkable ability of Mahfouz speaking about and for the mad, which is also kind of a modernist phenomena. You know, um, how can he attempt to write about madness? Does his task amount to this sort of paradox? Because, you know, you use narrative to, or narrative is a sequential logic, right? Uh, How do you use logic against itself? You know, the logic of language to sort of penetrate the beyond of language. And I think this is is sort of uh, why I felt it was it was an important uh, an important work, um, and I think he also had this sort of. Mahfouz has a degree in philosophy, and I believe that his philosophical musings found their way into uh, into this novel. And if you read, uh, you know, like if you read a Greek philosophy, for instance, and you you'll find that Plato was the first recorder uh, or recorded philosopher to actually speak about madness. That, that contending that madness is not always evil, you know, especially when given by the gods, right? Uh, which, which Plato speaks about in the Phaedrus. And, and that madness is really divine in a sense. Madness could also be a sign. And so always the mad The mad are sending a sign to us. You know, the mad are not really mad. I mean, maybe they are mad at us, at the way things have come become. And, and I think this is the, 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 of course, the madman in Plato has this sort of, you know, pleasure and pain, uh, but it's all about the experience of life. So there, there's always like, you know, the, the guy was just quiet by day and he wanted to do something. He was always sort of captivated by this silence, which is a withdrawal, right? But there's something about the civilized behavior. What does it mean to be civilized and what could be hidden under this norm? or are this term civilized, right? You remember the notion of the nasty woman, right? This, <laughs> this whole idea of the how civility also could hide uh, prejudice, right? And could hide social injustices in it. And I think this moment of revolution in that small text sort of opens up uh, the Egyptian psyche of the 1930s in a way that uh, asks the question, where are we going? Um, and, and are we being a fair society? Uh, are we okay being a monarchy? Do we want this, you know, ludicrous behavior and lavish, lavish uh, spendings of those kings to continue to, to, to define our life for us? Or should we carve a different path?
0: Now, um, you mentioned the, the novel, The Red Revolutionary earlier, um, but I wanted to make sure you, we, we got back to it because um, I think it, Kind of offers a, a, a counter narrative um, during this mid mid century period. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about this this book and and what it represents uh, for for this period?
1: Yes, uh, I do speak about uh, the Red Revolutionary in chapter six, and um, so 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 the Red Revolutionary is written by uh, Ali Ahmed Bakathir. Uh, and Bakathir is actually a, a a very remarkable uh, in his own right uh, e- egyptian author and um, and i and i and i and, and but also he is an islamist but not in a sense you know like people use the word islamism um you know like he is just wanted um if if um if the muslim brotherhood had said Qutb as say their mouthpiece in terms of uh, sharia islam um the, the way forward the intellectual the public intellectual so to speak right they would have ali ahmed bekathir as their novelist does this make sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: so in a way islam uh, has uh, has offered modern egyptian culture these rich models of literary and, and and also cinematic, as as we talked about earlier, and philosophical expressions. And so, in, in a way, there's always this desire to explore new ideas. So, for us, here wrote uh, The Red Revolutionary, which which is about, okay, so The Red Revolutionary is a novel that is sort of trying to recreate a a, a, a past event, right, uh, of Thawrat al-Baramika, which is the the, the, the uh, Revolution, uh, back during the Abbasid uh, times, and, and and there was a lot of uh, tension among Egyptians. There's a lot of uh, plottings for, for, for you know for certain groups. There's a lot of division in the in the Muslim societies uh, around that time. So he took it in order to sort of. Um, I'm trying to find the word for esqab to project it on, uh, on on the current Egyptian scene without really revealing that it's a projection, right? And so it's about this Egyptian peasant again who is lost because his family is poor. He is working for someone who is uh, his landlord, who is basically taking all his sweat and you know and giving him your pennies at the end of the day, who who doesn't really see. The, you know, a meaning to his life of continuous labor, and he starts losing his family members, and he's absolutely poor, living from, from one day to the other. And then, all of a sudden, uh, he just something happens, and this is why, um, it, you know, like he he has to revolt again. So this whole idea of the of the revolting peasant that that comes against uh, against his own. Uh, not his own, but his own ruler, and and finally will just have to confront the tyranny of his master. And and I believe that uh, the ideas uh, in the novel—it's a very difficult novel to read because to read it you have to have familiarity with uh, Jafar al-Barmaki and uh, and you have to have familiarity with this Islamic history of tension and and seditions that took place uh, in the, in the past. So. It's a difficult novel to read, but uh, if you are an Egyptian trying to find meaning among all these sort of sectarian movements, uh, Bakathir is trying to bring you back to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, net. Um, so, so uh, he is the. I don't want to call him the opposite. <clears throat> Forgive me, or pardon me. The opposite of Sayid, uh, sorry, the opposite of Mahfuz, or the opposite of of al Hakim. But he definitely saw Islam as the solution, so to speak. You know, the, the Islam as a unifier. Uh, but he also was pr- sort of preaching a different version of Islam. Uh, that is the more Sunni, يعني, jama'at, al- uh, 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 you know, like the. The Sunni Islam of, uh, you know, of Sayyid Qutb, so to speak, and also of Hassan al-Banna, uh, in in a way that sort of, if we want to protect Islam, this is the time to come under this sort of, under this net. And so, in a way, it's it's a it's a, it's a cultural history that that speaks about what it means to be an Egyptian. And it it should always mean something to be a Muslim Egyptian. So it comes back to the moment of we should never let the dissolution of the caliphate in 1924 deter us from coming back together under the rubric of Islam which by the way i mean that's what the muslim brotherhood did right the muslim brotherhood to many people uh, christian they don't know this but i mean history that is not really well known is that it began as a social movement and back in the Ismailiyya in 1928 when hassan al-banna was working in a factory enslaved by you know the factory owner they were giving pennies you know it's a familiar story in every country where there's always this sort of CEO or whoever that it is, and is just making all the money out of you, and you're basically getting trifles. And so um, I think this is something that a lot of people needed to know. And, and so some someone like Bakathir would look at Tahseen and say, well, really, is that what you wanted, to embrace Europe? And to sort of implant another sort of recolonization, cultural recolonization of our culture, or should we just go back to our roots and sort of see what Islam has done for us and where we can become uh, part of it? Because without Islam, we are completely lost. But nobody really defines what this Islam means, and and uh, and. and it wasn't Bakathir who criticized uh, Ta'hsin, but it was Sayyid Qutb who did, right? And, and and I think that Sayyid Qutb would say to Ta'hsin, for instance, you know, this is not the that I grew up in. This is not my village. I had a different village. I had different experience. My village is way different from yours. My Islam is different from yours, right? And so um, this whole idea of let's not listen to Ta'hsin. Ta'hsin just does represent a fracture of what the challenges of an Egyptian peasantry or Egyptian village really are. And so, uh, of course, the embattled Muslim Brotherhood wanted a voice. And that time, the novel became important. And I think Ahmed, Ali Ahmed Bakathir sort of broke through that by writing a novel. Uh, so, so in a way, competing in the literary field, but competing for, 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 for this sort of Muslim Brotherhood version of Islam so that they could attract people. So look at it as a propaganda novel, uh, if you will. Um, so, yes, I can tell you more about this, but for now, uh, this is how I, I read, uh, at least I read the novel. Um, and I and I I think there is definitely a... Um, it, it wasn't a phenomenon, uh, uh, so, uh, or sorry, it wasn't a phenomenon in the sense that there weren't too many... To, to change the scene because at that time the intellectual scene was already dominated by the likes of Tah Hussain Tawfiq al-Hakim Abbas Mahmoud al-Aqad and others uh, so but there were definitely some uh, intellectual conflicts uh, between uh, Ali Ahmed Bakathir Said Khat um, and, and the secular uh, current uh, in Egypt in the, 19, in the 1930s and in the 1940s where the Red Revolutionary was written
0: um, we certainly have to talk about film before I let you go since uh, the film comes in uh, towards the end of the book first uh, as a kind of subject of the, the literature you're looking at. But then, of course, you, you look at Yusuf Shaheen's um, Jamila the Algerian uh, 1958 film. Um, and you, you do a great job in the chapter of kind of giving us some of the the, the background um, history of cinema in Egypt and and where Shaheen this this kind of iconic figure comes in um, so uh, g- t- tell us why you you brought Shaheen into this narrative that has been mostly looking at literature so far and, and what you saw this particular film uh, kind of revealing to to your readers Oh, excellent point. Okay,
1: well, interestingly, uh, in Egypt in particular, um, the history of the novel really sort of goes hand in hand with the history of filmmaking. Uh, unlike in France, where a novel began much earlier than this, right, like maybe 100 years prior, Um you, you see in Egypt that the film is a new genre in general. It's almost like what, 100 years and some. So, and also the novel was a new genre. So there was definitely a symbiosity between these two, and they speak to each other. And if you read, for instance, um, uh, Mahfouz, or you read some of the Egyptian uh, authors, you will see that most of their works were easily adapted into film. But uh, the reason why I chose Shaheen is because Shaheen also collaborated a lot with Nagib Mahfouz. And I believe Nagib Mahfouz wrote the script for uh, Gamila al-Kazairiyah, so it wasn't too bad of a, you know, it wasn't a, a difficult connection to me. But uh, Gamila al-Kazairiyah, um, and I'm using the word Gemila in the Egyptian pronunciation of it, uh, who is known as J- Jamila Buhair, Although Egyptians would call it Gamila Buhreit. So, you know, it's it's all different pronunciations of the same person. was a sort of an an epitome of a moment of triumphant nationalism. And this is the time when the visual, you know, the visual became, you know, in, in a word of Frederick Jameson, the visual is always pornographic. There's something about the visual that allows you to see and to just stay in awe of what you see. And I believe that Nasserism, specifically in the 1950s, funded cinema. And I mentioned this repeatedly in the um, <clears throat> sorry in the prehistory that I give for film in, in, the, in a chapter. It's a long chapter. Uh, but, but I believe that the Egyptian government or Hakumat Thawra at that time uh, tapped into cinema and funded it heavily and started to use it as propaganda because they could see the appeal of film. Uh, on Egyptian psyche. So in a way, Gamil um, al-Ghazariya is, I don't want to say written by Nasser in a way, but it's a, th- there is this inspiration that um, that created the moment of of speaking about a woman who is a death redeemer, fidaiya in a completely different country, right? Uh, fighting its own independence to use it as a propaganda for the cause of Egyptian nationalism and for the continuity of the Egyptian military regime, because nationalism works effectively when there is a threat of an enemy. So the British colonialism ended, the last soldier left Egypt in 1954, what do we do now? we cannot live if you want to continue to be nationalistically aware you know you cannot you need to have an enemy even if this enemy is to be invented you really have to have the enemy because the presence of the enemy uh, legitimates your continuity as a dictator <laughs> so so interesting right this that's the constant threat um, as, as they say. So I chose Gamila al because also as a cinematic piece, it's remarkable. It is. It was made long before Ponte Corvo's Battle of Algiers. Mahfouz used a lot of interesting ideas to make this. I mean, it was a very popular movie uh, in the 1950s, and it won lots of prizes, and it went to Russia, and the Russians loved it, and it circulated in Europe. I don't think it came to the United States at all at the time. Uh, but there is a lot about the cinema um, movement at the time that gets into this sort of propaganda sort of literature as well so uh, i thought that it was clever because uh, if you're thinking mahfouz really sorry uh, well Mahfuz wrote the scenario but shaheen wanted also a secular egypt shaheen always sends a message through his cinema that movie actually was not going to be you know Was not going to see the lights, you know, pun intended, without the support of the Egyptian military. At that time, The, the, some of the characters, and I think the hero, Bagdal Sabah, in the movie, who played the role of of, of, of Gamila, was um, you know, she was the daughter of a very high-ranking officer in Egyptian army, so if, if Shaheen wanted 200 soldiers, he would give him 200 soldiers extras. <laughs> so there was a, so it's definitely a lot of support, and also if you read the, 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 the pre-credits for the movie, you will see how the movie is owing its very existence to the Egyptian army. And I thought it was an excellent example to sort Sort of, uh, you know, talk about and 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 maybe end the book with to to, to see how Egyptian nationalism um sort of transitioned from uh from the from, from the literary to the visual which by the way appeals more to the two masses who are uh who are illiterate in a sense that they will not have more access to reading books than they would have to the power of of the visual and you know i mean if you go and read the hit the, the, the history of nationalism um for instance, Walter Benjamin's The Artwork in the Age of its Mechanical or Technical Reproducibility," this famous 1934 essay where he speaks about uh, the film, The Will to Power, but I know that uh, uh, Hitler's, the movie of seeing Hitler coming from the sky. All these representations of the of the heroic military, right, sort of gives a different impression and sort of fuels the nationalism of the people. And I don't know if Nasser knew about this, But that exactly is what happened. And of course, there's also a moment of disillusionment. And I believe that Yusuf Shaheen, as he grew through the years, sort of realized that, you know, that that he was already caught into this sort of nationalist ideology uh, of Egypt. But uh, the movie is interesting in the sense that it misrepresents, at the same time, it represents Gamila al-Gazairiyya. So, Gazira, the does not speak uh, Algerian. They all speak Egyptian Arabic, <laughs> of course. So there is no, Alger, there's no Algerian Arabic. There, the women in Ponto if you if you if you have seen the film Christian, are mostly veiled, right? And it was part of their experiences of the Casbah city is to go unveiled and look as French as they could possibly look in order to disrupt the city, you know, and you know carry on their, you know carry on there, the schemes against the, against the French occupiers. But the women of, of Mahfouz are all unveiled. So, so this sort of soft Islamism, I think Mahfouz was trying to send a message to the Egyptians that it's not, it's not Islam, right, uh, that, that, that gave Egypt its independence. And it maybe it's not Islam, quote-unquote, that gave Algeria its independence. It is basically that national liberalism. That we should all, uh, you know, and the, the sense of identity and belong to a country without having to feel. So it's not the veiled woman. And I think that's the question of this chapter the question of the veil that that has really become so startling for me. If you watch the movie, and I hope you have the chance to, you may already have, a Christian, knowing your interest in Egyptian cinema and, and, and Muslim cinema, uh, you will see that Gamil al is almost like John Dark, <laughs> right? Like so so secularized and also that the, the movie ends with her uh, pending execution. She doesn't get executed, of course, you know, like in, 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 in reality, she actually it gets postponed and then she has a lawyer, and the lawyer ends up marrying her. And of course the, the Egyptian, sorry, the Algerian people sort of disowned her because she married the enemy. It's an interesting sort of sad uh, history uh, in that thing. But Mahfou, sorry, but Shaheen did not really know much of, of what was going on um, after that. But the movie ends with this sort of impending death, uh, the torture uh, of them. Egypt had to continue uh, seeing uh colonialism as an enemy, Nasser wanted to unify all the Arabs. If you watch the movie if you listen carefully to the to the some of the messages in the movie, they say there isn't there isn't a secret Arab country that is providing us with uh, with weapons and caches. This secret Arab country is Egypt right or they talk about how come they attack Egypt when 1956 happened, right? Egypt is blah 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 so there's always this sort of reference to Egypt outside Egypt, but we all know it's an Egyptian story at the end so how do you write, how to make a movie that is not about an Egyptian woman that ends up becoming deeply Egyptian and deeply Egyptianized and also deeply uh, for the sake of uh, promoting a, a national, you know, like nationalist propaganda uh, for, for the Egyptians at a time when Nasserism was in a dire need uh, for it. So, so that's why I thought it would really be a good movie to sort of, you know, very symbolic uh, of the time. Of course, I delve deeper into the style. I love sim- I love cinema, and I love film style. I, I, the torture scenes of Gamila were done marvelously, just from an artistic point of view. You know, how do you create what we call in cinema the? Um, I'm trying to remember the word, uh, or the phrase, uh, the discrete shot, right? the discrete shot is when you are when when, when you are trying to care for the sensibilities of the audience but you don't want to make the audience watch you know something but you want to infer it from the shot so for instance you will have two people um you know meeting each other and trying to make love but then you you know all of a sudden the camera moves on to a train entering a tunnel right or you will have some people uh, in in a garden and then it the, the, it zooms out to the to the birds on the tree but you understand that something is continuing behind the film so how do you present torture of a woman in which 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 really is physical and 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 involves parts of her body without offending the sensibilities of Egyptians and so using the The Perskuro effect, I think it was amazing and brilliant from Shaheen to do that. Um, And you can can show how learned he is. And the effects were so impressive. And it was the first time to show a a shadow um, of of torture, but give the Egyptians the idea that torture was really severe uh, at the time. So there's some interesting cinematic moments here that Shaheen did brilliantly, with a very limited budget, in support of the Egyptian army, uh, which which foreshadows uh, Ponte Corvo, and I think people should really watch this movie <laughs> just for the aesthetics of it.
0: Hmm. Well, Mohammed, uh, it's it's really a wonderful book. There's there's so much more obviously that we could we could talk about, and I hope that listeners will uh, grab a copy and read it for themselves. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us briefly about some of the things you're working on now.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for this compliment. I really do hope the book finds its readers. Um, uh, well, uh, I was writing this book at the same time I I finished another, even though uh, Islam and the culture of modern Egypt came at the same time as the Quran and uh and, and and modern arabic literary criticism i did not write these two books simultaneously it's just, you know, <laughs> that this is this is impossible but but um, they, they both happened because of you know print uh, printing reasons and also presses and, and, and delays here and there they just both happened to come at the same time and so tahsin um, is sort of a common denominator in the two books the other book is a book in which i worked on the um tracing just some figures who try to Reread Islamic history and reread the Torah tradition, but but with an eye of changing it and moving away from, uh, you know, the the mythical elements that sort of have surrounded that tradition. Ta'ziin is one of them, and uh, and how the academic Islam, so to speak, that is not really talked much about here, sort of was able to actually create. A sort of a reasonable path um, for, for 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 tafsir and for the Quran that sort of brings me back to Darfi al Hakim and uh, the people of the cave. How could you make the Quran a sort of a a, a heritage for liter- for literary uh, ramifications and literary influence and literary enrichment. And I think this is what they have done. Uh, so uh, Amin al khouli and his wife, uh, Bint al and his student, um, Muhammad Ahmad Khalafallah, who basically wrote something about the narratives of the Quran. And, and and all these were met, unfortunately, most of these authors were met with a lot of ridicule and, and persecution. And some of them were fired from their posts. Um, and we all know the story of Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid as well who was made to divorce his wife just because they are trying to offer something different they are trying to deal with the sources differently they're trying to say you have to understand that those people who are writing tafsir are also human beings and nobody is perfect And, and if you really want to understand Islam and the Quran just go to the source itself and read the book and try to understand the humanity behind it and try to learn the moral lessons from it but also learn to coexist and learn to appreciate the other end. So, in a way, it's 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 a it's a good line of thinking. And I thought it's it's important to speak it is not just in europe that that islamic studies you know is trying to take a different view on islam and the quran by by engaging late antiquity and all these other forms it's also happening with from within um from within the arab muslim world and so i use i use these figures to kind of present this different sort of passage which is no longer the sort of conservative line of al azhar but also not the you know not that that uh, Sort of the demythologizing arbitrariness uh, of Orientalism as well, or Orientalist thinking in Quranic studies. So something uh, really good in between, which I thought is beautiful. But also to speak about a woman uh, who is also a, a Mufassirah bint al um, You know uh, how women engage with the Quran. It was just beautiful, and it was a really enriching uh, study. And from there, uh, Christian, I am working on a new study about the Quran. Uh, as a literary influence of course but also about its journey in western europe um not necessarily um you know like that would be a very big long book but but i am calling it god's other book and i'm dealing with how the quran is being studied right now in western academia how it is looked at um in what angles it is uh, how it has not been literalized yet uh, when is the time to come and read it, you know, like like we're reading without taking away the sacredness of the Qur'an, but also it is the the richest literary heritage of the Arabic world. Uh, I think Amin al-Khuli called it uh, uh, yani the, the richest, the most glorious work of the arabic language but also it's also richest literary presentation as well so i think it's I, I think i'm trying to to create sort of this path for the quran to be studied without all these sort of dogmas around it just to free it for everyone to read it for their own selves and to just be part of the tradition that of the human heritage we have and instead of mediating it through theories and historical positivisms and things that really don't seem uh, it's almost like trying to to learn how to um to ride a horse, but to but jump by jumping over it, <laughs> and, and maybe maybe just ride the horse, it <laughs> <Just laughs> on and just read the text and, and, and engage with it in, in an informed literary and linguistic way, and so that's the new project I'm working on uh, right now.
0: Well, it sounds great. I hope I hope you uh, have good luck with that, and I hope that listeners will check out your your other books as well. Um, So thanks again for for joining us, Mohamed. Oh, thank you so
1: much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed this, and um, I I hope that I will meet you in person at a certain point in the future. Until then, I I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and uh, and of the academic year as well, Christian. Yes, thank you, Mohamed.
0: That was my conversation with Mohamed Salama about Islam and the culture of modern Egypt, from the monarchy to the republic, published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.